Hello everyone and welcome back to the Fan Fiction Tapes. I'm your host today, Maya, pronouns she, her, and today I'm joined by... Hi, I'm Nat, uh, pronouns she, her, and they, them. And I am our producer, Ian, pronouns he, him. Today's topic is all about that oof. Tragedy, drama, and angst. What are they and where do we see them? And to start us off, uh, let's talk a little bit about tragedy, uh, which as a genre dates back to ancient Greece, right? If you hear about those tragic plays and such, that's where some of that started. And there's a general loose strategy that I'm going to talk about before I uh, toss this over to Ian, whose ballgame this is definitely more than mine. Here it usually starts out in a good place, uh, throughout their own actions, they suffer a fall of some fort, and in all the ones I've read, it ends in their death, along with the death of a lot of people around them. And this is always brought on by their fatal flaw, some aspect of their personality. Ian, you were always more the theatrical guy. Uh, anything you'd like to add to that as well? That's about right. Probably the most, one of the most famous of the Greek tragedies that, like, at least for me, the first one that comes to mind is actually the tragedy of King Oedipus, which uh, may be more familiar in, in the name Oedipus Rex, which is the, the Latin version. There's actually some subtlety in the Greek name, which is Oedipus Tyrannos, a sidebar into Greek. In ancient Greek, there's two words for king, tyrannos and uh, vasileus. And the difference between them is whether it's a king who seized power or a king who inherited power. And in the story of King Oedipus, Oedipus arrives in the city of Corinth. Sorry. <sighs> I'm I'm getting I'm getting two places mixed up because both of both of those cities play an important role in the story of Oedipus. Oedipus arrives in Thebes and finds it besieged by the Sphinx. And he is the first person to solve the riddle of the Sphinx, causing her to dive off the cliff to her death. And as thanks for saving the city from the monster that had been harassing travelers and uh, merchants and people of the city, uh, they declare him king because conveniently their king went missing and did not leave an heir behind. So Oedipus moves into the palace, marries the queen, the, the former king's widow, Jocasta, and they live happily for many years they have a couple of children. Fast forward a, a couple of decades, a plague is ravaging the city, and Oedipus, King Oedipus has to consult a seer as to what is going on, and the seer basically tells him, somebody has killed their father and married their mother. Well, look, well basically looking pointedly at Oedipus. Oops. And for those of us maybe less familiar with Greek tragedy, but familiar with psychology, the Oedipus Complex, and 
the other one that I'm forgetting right now. They're a pair. Electra, maybe? I think it is the Electra complex, which is named for a different story in Greek mythology. Yes, but this is the origin of the name uh, Oedipal Complex. Yes. It turns out that Oedipus's father had a oracle tell him that his son would kill him. So when Oedipus was born, his father had him taken out into the hills to be abandoned to die. But he was found by a shepherd taken to the city of Corinth. That's where that one comes into play. And grew up not knowing that he was adopted. Until, as an adult, he is traveling from Corinth to Thebes and meets a man at a crossroads. They get into an argument. They get into the argument escalates to a fight. And Oedipus kills him. And then he arrives in Thebes, does the Riddle of the Sphinx, and marries Jocasta. And it all comes out, eventually, that the man that he killed was, in fact, the king of Thebes, his father. And the woman that he married, Jocasta, is his mother. This is an instance of a tragedy where... It doesn't actually end in the hero's death. Oedipus does not die. Jocasta, when she realizes what has happened, does kill herself. Oedipus merely tears his own eyes out and then Uh, goes into exile. Merely. Merely, yes. Just a little casual eye gouging. The fatal flaw that he has that brings about his downfall is his pride and his temper. Because that is what leads him to refuse to get out of the way of a stranger on the road and escalate that into a lethal fight. It is why he refuses to listen to the seer who is trying to tell him what the problem is and threatens to have uh, his brother-in-law executed for treason for putting the seer up to it, quote-unquote. Now I'd like to fast-forward a few hundred years. Probably the form of tragedies that many people who have gone through the American education system are more familiar with are the works of Shakespeare. I've read these. Uh, thanks, American education system. There, there are several that we could mention. I liked Macbeth. I just wanted to mention Hamlet. Not to drag this one out too long. I just want to bring up the fatal flaw of Hamlet, which is is that he is indecisive. Basically, could have solved the issues of the play if he had simply taken his father's shade at its word and murdered his uncle in his sleep. But then we would not have had that story. Of course. Yeah. 
if things worked out simply, well, yes. life would be really boring. Yes. Would have been a, yeah, would have been a shorter play. I think my favorite part of Hamlet is when he is, when Hamlet is standing like behind his uncle, clear shot at killing him. No one would be the wiser, but his uncle is praying and Hamlet has this inner monologue where he goes, well, I can't kill him while he's praying because then he'll go to heaven and he deserves to suffer and all of these things. And then not what a few paragraphs later stabs poor Polonius behind a curtain, just out of panic. And that, that right there is just like the ultimate fatal flaw of he can't make up his mind in the moment he can. Yeah talk his way out of taking any action, and then the one time where he does act rashly, it just makes everything worse. Wait, uh, Ian? Mm-hmm? Are you familiar with the show The Good Place? I haven't watched it, but I've experienced a lot of cultural osmosis about it. Yes, yes, we've all seen The Time Knife. Exactly. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> There's a character uh, in The Good Place with a very similar fatal flaw. I was briefly, deeply amused by the connection of the two characters. Uh, if you're familiar with both, you know who I'm talking about. I believe I'm familiar, yeah. Are you talking about uh, Chidi? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I need to go back and finish that show. I was partway through... Before, for whatever reason, I stopped watching it. Yeah, I made it about halfway through that show. I'm very bad at watching television shows, though. I'm, I have a hard time sticking to one, and I only got about halfway through. But yeah, this, GD is a perfect example of cannot make up his mind to literally save his life. <laughs> now, I'm I'm trying to think here. I know that I put in put this in the script that sometimes a fatal flaw or a character trait that is a fatal flaw in a tragedy might be a heroic heroic trait in another circumstance. I'm 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 trying to come up with some some examples of that and I'm I'm drawing a blank right now. I think I've actually seen that men brought up by um Red of overly sarcastic productions. I know that she's done an episode on tragedy. So if you want more detail, go look, go look up her video. Well, I suppose bring it back to Hamlet and so that we can have a nice segue into drama. You mentioned that scene where Hamlet has a shot at killing Claudius and doesn't take it because Claudius seems to be praying. And then he leaves and the scene reveals that Claudius was not, in fact, praying. And that is an example of dramatic irony. So, let's talk about drama. I am a big drama. fan of dramatic irony, although sometimes I can... I, I find I sometimes am a little, like, easy to find an, an amount of drama to be too much drama. There is nothing that I love more than the audience seeing the calamity coming. And no one being able to do anything about it. You yes. know that it's about to be a train wreck. You know what the ending is supposed to be. But 
no one in no one could rightfully have guessed it in that situation and so they don't and it ends in just not always yes. tragedy but often tragedy love it that is the uh i mean th- there's a reason for the phrase it's like a train wreck you can't look away mhm i you know what's going to happen you know it's going to be terrible and horrible and you know no one's going to stop it so drama overall as we kind of got the intro with dramatic irony is about conflict. Dramatic irony is the conflict between what we, the audience, know and what the characters within the story know. And there's another level to that, is that usually the audience knows something that would resolve a conflict, but because the characters don't know it, it drives the conflict. Yes. And conflict is basically necessary for stories, right? That's how you get things happen because of some conflict, whether that is you have shit and I want it, Macbeth, or it's something more abstract than that. You hold these beliefs I disagree with, or even you have done something I dislike. Or hell, sometimes there is something I need that I do not have. These are all different forms of conflict. And this is how how we get stories. Things happen because someone... Or because of some conflict. Wow, I am wordsing well today. My house is dying, but if I can pass the electoral trials, I can save them. (laughs) That's one example right there. And Ian, you wrote in the script uh, the rule of drama. If the potential for conflict is visible, then it will never be passed over. And that's somewhat a Chekhov's gun, yeah? I think Chekhov's gun might be a corollary of that, but this is like one of those things like, you know, the rule of funny or the rule of cool. It's like, kind of de- it kind of depends on on the genre of work that we're in uh, how much this will be adhered to but like there's like you said uh, conflict is necessary for storytelling so sometimes you just have to make something interesting happen yeah and in my experience both in reading and in writing I've always found it very unsatisfying if a drama is set up or a drama seems very clear or even inevitable, and then it just gets glossed over or ignored or just doesn't doesn't fill it doesn't fulfill the purpose that it was set out to do. So it does operate, like you said, as a corollary to a Chekhov's gun. If if you see the drama, unless there's a very good reason that that drama shouldn't happen, then you gotta have the drama. It can leave a story feeling very hollow otherwise. Yeah, I was gonna say kind of an interesting piece of writing advice derived from that, that uh, is advice I got as a wee lass when I played baseball, is always commit to the follow-through, right? It's not just the earlier parts before you hit the ball, or in this case, 
have your drama moment, but actually the follow through what you do with that drama and how it finishes that is also very important. Yeah, drama is definitely something that I see as multi-step. And like you said, it's the follow-through that really sells it. You can have your dramatic moment, but if if it doesn't leave people in the story and even outside of the story, the reader, if it doesn't leave them reeling at the end, it's a, it's... To, to paraphrase a proverb, if drama happens and no one is f***ed up about it, does it even count? <laughs> if a drama happens in the forest. <laughs> uh. That was actually a pretty good segue to the uh, kind of third primary topic of today's episode, angst. Which is where the name of the podcast, once again, just barely swings in for a brief visit. Angst is primarily kind of a fanfiction term, uh, and it usually is going to denote a story with some amount of hurt or emotional wounds. Angst can also... Angst stories can sometimes swing a little bit on the edgy side of things sometimes, uh, depending on how the author handles it. Uh, However, like... Tragedy, the point of an angst story is catharsis of some kind. You are putting the characters in situations, not necessarily because you're evil and mean, but because coming out of the situations, or just having situations happen to someone who isn't you, can be a little relieving. Yeah, that is definitely something that resonates with me whenever I engage with any writing. I've I was I was told that I was an angst writer. Uh, yes, you are. I just I just I just when I started just I was just writing. I just thought, okay, well this is very, you know, dramatic and then I saw comments roll in and I was like, oh, okay. So it is on the on the angstier side, I see. But like you said, catharsis is a very large part of it for me. I really find it to be, I I mean, I'm the kind of person I will regularly sit down right before bed and go, oh, I should watch really emotional stuff and cry for an hour for fun. Look, letting the tears out can feel good. It feels great, yeah. At um, mom. <laughs> and angst is one of those ways that you can very safely engage with it in a way that already is going to emotionally resonate with you because you are engaged with characters that you care about. You know, you're not... I mean, I can't speak for the entire world, but you're not often reading fan fiction of franchises you don't care about. I can't say that's something I do terribly often. I do it sometimes because uh, I'm it, yeah. weird like that. But it, yeah, it happens. But yeah, if you if you're really into the locked tomb, you're seeking out locked tomb fan fiction, and seeing that catharsis with characters you've already connected with is, you know, it it's in my opinion sort of kind of puts it in the fast lane of getting to that point of 
reaching catharsis of reaching emotional resolution within your within your own perspective of things yes that is definitely one of the things i like about fanfic is i don't have to do all of the groundwork and build up to get <laughs> to where i can start playing with my and your emotions I can just start doing that from the ground because there's already this emotional investment in the setting, in the characters, in the happenings, even. It definitely does make it easier when you're like, oh, I've already got these little characters. Let's let's put them in a situation. No build Stick up, the blurbs in a microwave and rotate them. <laughs> yeah, I... I, I primarily have written arcane fanfiction, and I've been accused of some some pretty targeted decisions against uh, Caitlyn, which is hilarious because I have been playing League of Legends off and on since 2013, and Caitlyn was my main. But then came Arcane, and I was like, oh, I love this character. Let me you break want to cause them. them pain. Yeah. <laughs> How can I make them suffer? And could it all be because you see some of yourself in them? No, not at all. <laughs> Impossibility. That is, yeah, there is... There is something to be said about the best angst is the angst that you know. I know it's kind of a cliche writing piece of advice of like write what you know and I don't necessarily advocate for that because you know you can write whatever you want to write but it really does help when you're writing something about angst or pain or some sort of emotional turmoil when you deeply understand that you can really kind of cut to the core of it at that point I think I've said it before to people but um, I'm always the first reader that I traumatize with anything I write. <laughs> yeah, with write what you know, especially with this, I would say, write what you know, but know does not have to be personal experience. It can be research. It can be someone who you know closely went through this event. It doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, you personally did this because then we're going to get robbed of a lot of cool stories. Right, you can't exactly write a story about raising corpses from the grave. Then, if you only do things you've done, because last I checked, we can't do that. Not to my knowledge. Or you know, like half of all sci-fi would then be impossible because, like, almost all of it breaks the laws of physics <laughs> flagrantly. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely there's definitely something to be said about knowing. Not necessarily always meaning first-hand experience. Like you said, you know, you can see things from a second-hand experience. You can experience it through a loved one. There's there's many different ways that you can kind of come to that understanding of it. And like you said, if you don't if you don't ever expand beyond what you know, then that's how you end up with a lot of really cookie cutter stories. That I remember. I can't remember where I was seeing. Where I saw this, it's not an original thought, but someone talking about the advice, write only what you know is what leads to a lot of books about middle-aged uh, writing professors thinking of having affairs. 
I, what? <laughs> Can't remember where I read read that, but I've thought about it very very frequently ever since. That is that is a trend in books. I mean, I don't I don't know if it is or isn't. I don't necessarily seek that out. It's not my cup Not mine either. Um, <laughs> looks at growing collection of queer literature on the shelf behind me. <laughs> and on my bed, because I keep some of it on my chair where I'm sitting right now. Okay, we are about 30 minutes into the episode. And we've just gotten through what's supposed to be the intro. <laughs> so, let's talk about some works uh, that deal with all of the above. We've mentioned uh, Oedipus Rex, we've mentioned Hamlet. And, given that, unfortunately, Dylan isn't here today, and we have Ian, Nat, and myself, The Locked Tomb, I think... Fits tragedy, drama, and angst quite well. It it's all of the above. It really is. It really, really. It's the nail on the head for all three of those, in my opinion. You know that is an interesting way of looking at Gideon the Ninth as a tragedy. I I mean that that's what it is, right? It's Gideon's and Harrow's characteristic fatal flaws, their miscommunications, their misinterpretations of the other are why that book ends the way it does. If they had been basically anyone else, say uh, Cam and Pal, that wouldn't have been a problem. But these or Gideon and Harrow, they do each think the other hates the other, and therefore hate themselves. Or wait, no. They hate themselves and expect the other to hate them the same amount. So. And for the same reasons. Yes, of course. Yeah, there's really something... It, it feels weird to call angst special, but it is really kind of this special mixture of different kinds of pain. You have the inherent self-loathing. You have the environments that they were brought up in, possibly being some of the most bleak environments that someone could survive in. Because the ninth house, I would struggle to say that anyone lives there. I think they mostly just persist. Yeah. And just the terrible circumstances that led to their particular brand of animosity. Everything that led up to even before chapter one, just putting these two characters in the perfect place to be the most broken people imaginable. Uh, yeah, broken yeah. is um, definitely the right word for those two. Yeah. I just I just like to point out the number one way to resolve drama, both in uh, storytelling and in real life, is communication. And that is the opposite of everything the Ninth House stands for. <laughs> the yeah, Ninth you can, House. Uh, you can say that again. 
It is all about the secrets. They even have a special necromantic technique, the sewn tongue. Like, most of their magic is bone magic. And that one, the sewn tongue, doesn't seem to necessarily be bone magic. I I don't think it involves any bones at all, actually. Except maybe the jawbone. I believe that yeah, I believe they mentioned the jawbone, but it is also very specifically they say that the lips are sewn. There's there's a lot of flesh magic in that that technique that is a ninth house specialty, a house who otherwise does bones, motherfucker. And also one that definitely at least with Hero has some culture of derision of flesh magic. Yeah, she doesn't have much. She doesn't have much use for flesh magic until it can help her keep her secrets. So, if we're looking at Gideon the Ninth as a tragedy, Gideon is of course our protagonist for, for that book, our tragic hero. What is her fatal flaw? <sighs> that is, she's just too attractive. <laughs> she's just too a- she's just too attractive for her own good. Okay, you say that, but without think yeah. about it. <laughs> it works. Without yeah, without getting into spoiler territory for the book, I do think that one of the biggest flaws that Gideon has is just this inability to see anything outside of the surface anything of anything that she can perceive as one way she is dead set on it you can see that with her interactions with harrow hark she's convinced that she knows harrow hark inside and out that there's no depths beyond just petty hate you you know you see that with another character that i won't name for spoiler reasons where Gideon has this very positive opinion of them right out the gate that proves to be rather misguided. Wrong. Very, yeah, very wrong. And she refused to listen to someone else's very, very astute observations that things were not adding up because that would have required her to change her perspective and look at something a little bit deeper. It's not that she's incapable of doing it. I just think that so many years on the ninth turned it into sort of a defense mechanism of sorts. And that's really the most the most painful of tragic flaws, the ones that were built up maybe as a even response. For, yeah, as a response, or maybe even for a good reason, or maybe it's what kept somebody alive and then in the end, it's also their downfall, so that you can't even say, well, they should have just not been that way because they never would have made it that far otherwise. Just that extra added la- layer of pain of there was never anything that could have been done to avoid this. I think that that might that's a good analysis actually of of the um of it coming from growing up in the ninth house because that's the house of secrets you do not pry into the secrets that is anathema so a child 
exercising any sort of natural curiosity and then getting smacked down could certainly take that as a lesson. Do not look beyond the surface. The Lock Tomb really does have so many different examples of just the most painful possible interactions, even when they're not necessarily the most painful seeming to the characters just as readers. By the time Nona the Ninth comes around, I feel like it's just one hit after another. In the, most, the, time... in the most pleasurable ways, that's something that really draw, you know, draws me to the series. Yeah, it's one of those things for uh, perhaps any listeners who are not familiar with fan fiction and the kind of themes of that is that stuff that is angst, stuff that hurts, is pretty popular. Yeah, from from my experience, and I feel it's full disclosure to say that I don't have a ton of experience with fan fiction. I came to fan fiction really late in life because Arcane gave me a really bad case of brain rot after it ended. But I feel like there are two very distinct and different approaches to fan fiction a lot of times. And it's put these put these characters in a bad situation or take these characters out of the bad situation. They've been through enough. Sometimes it's both. You can accomplish both, yeah. It's especially it's especially useful in an angst story to sort of do that in the same way that you ease the tension back in a horror film or a horror story. You just want to give that little moment of peace and happiness. And you're not you don't even necessarily have to snatch that away. You can let them keep that. You just put something else in there that makes it worse again. Yeah. One of my first pieces of fan fiction that I wrote was basically, okay, this character's life sucks at this point in time, but what if I made it worse? <laughs> Some people look at something and say, I can make it better. Some people say, I can make it worse, and I will. And, you know, things got better eventually, but only after they got worse. That's something that I usually end up leaning towards is that things end up all right in the end. Sometimes it's a happy ending. Sometimes it's a bittersweet leaning towards happy, you know, sort of mixed bag kind of ending. I, For all my tough talk about loving angst, I really have a hard time ending it with people not being happy. Yeah, I definitely significantly prefer there being a good ending to it all, right? I, Ufi Ouchie Owie is all well and good, but, you know, I, I like there to be a, a, a happier ending. Yeah. And there's, there's places and times for really bleak endings, you know, I'm, the one I'm thinking of just off the top of my head is No Country for Old Men, a movie that just ends oh, 
ends just in the most pessimistic, depressing way possible. But it works for the story that's being told. I think that's the other thing, too, is that sometimes you have to look at the story you're being you're telling and draw that line of is this a tragedy or is this just going to be angsty? Because that can kind of color how you're coming at it in the end. Tragedy to me always feels like this downward spiral into that final calamity. Whereas angst, you know, it might dip and rise. It might do a bit of a roller coaster before kind of coasting into that end. And so I feel like if you start with one and then pivot to the other, it can really make it feel jarring. If you, if imagine if Hamlet ended right before Hamlet and Laertes end up poisoning each other and killing each other. If all of a sudden just Fortinbras showed up right there and said, stop, we're all going to be fine and friends. You know, it would feel really cheap and it would really cut everything that happened. I need to not make a physics reference here. Yeah, okay. I'm just going to avoid talking about that at all. (laughs) Because I know I'm not gonna help not going to be able to help myself from talking about things in a physics and math perspective. Yeah, physics and math is where my brain starts to kind of turn into static noise because I was a failed English major, so science and math doesn't work as hot in my brain. I think I can make it make sense, but that's... You have piqued my curiosity now. I, You've heard me give variations on this, Ian. Okay. Uh, I, I mean, I can explain it later, but... On a related note, before uh, we wrap a whole too much, kind of with what Nat's talking about, where you have tragedy, kind of like the locked tomb, where uh, downward spiral, downward spiral... And that tragedy can also involve angst, but angst need not involve tragedy. Uh, a book I've mentioned before on the show, Hinch, by Natalie's, you know, Walshots. I hope I pronounced that right. This book is definitely angsty, but it's not a tragedy. I, yeah, I, I would not call it a tragedy. There's no necessarily real fatal flaw that comes to mind for the main character, and while things do get worse over the nature of um, plot ramping up, it is not a downward spiral, necessarily. I think things overall end kind of well. Which, if I haven't recommended it to you before, both listeners and uh, Nat, I would recommend reading it if you are a fan of things like Sinoverse, or superhero stories from the villain's perspective. Hench is a pretty good one. Interesting, yeah. Uh, what was the name of that again? Hench, uh, H-E-N-C-H. Was that what you were looking for, or were you looking for the other one? Yeah, no, that one. I'm, I want to keep an eye out for that. I really liked it. It's great. It's queer. Mmm, yummy, yummy. And actually, while we're here, Nat, I will go ahead and uh, find a Sinoverse for you as well, which has the advantage of being free and on the internet. I do love both of those things. Yes, if you're if you're not familiar with that one, it's a uh, original 
fiction series that spawned off of uh, the writing prompts on Tumblr. Lovely, lovely writing prompts. I'll just go ahead and toss mm-hmm. that in VC text as well. I, I, I've talked about this series, which is spelled S-Y-N-O-V-E-R-S-E, several times on the show because I love it. That show also has X. It is not what I would call a tragedy. It is definitely dramatic. But things do not necessarily have a downward spiral, although there are emotional uh, highs and lows. Uh, does anyone else have works they would like to mention uh, before we move along and talk about a couple of last things before we wrap up the episode? This is one of those moments where you have all the examples until someone asks you for them, and then your mind just starts playing television jingles. There was there's a there's a book series by Samantha Shannon. Originally just one book, uh, Priory of the Orange Tree, and it's now received a prequel. And specifically, the prequel is very fun in the sense that it combines a lot of elements of angst and also that level of knowing how things are going to end and knowing that the characters don't know the revelations from prior to the orange tree and just watching them make ideal situations for their circumstances, but knowing that they didn't have to, it's this perfect little, it's painful every single time it comes up and I eat it up. Ooh. Okay. I loved Priory of the orange tree. I read it over. Wow, I read it, like, over a year ago. Yeah, How you, time flies. If you liked, if you if you enjoyed Prior to the Orange Tree, the prequel, A Day of Fallen Night, I believe it's called, is very, very good. There's, yeah, I've, I've, seen, I've, I've seen it in Barnes & Noble. Yeah. Actually, I, I, I considered picking it up, but I said, this is going to be pricey, I'd rather pick up a couple of cheaper books. That that and apparently it's very large. I ended up buying it a digital copy, but I I finally saw someone with the actual book. I was like, oh, you could you could use that as a literal doorstop. I am a fan of Tolkien, not Tolkien. <laughs> I am a fan of Tolkien, but that's not who I was going to mention in terms of doorstop books. Brandon Sanderson. Haven't he haven't has some been, but yeah, chonkers. <laughs> so yeah, that. That was not necessarily um, the thing that put me off. It was just kind of more of, this is a new book. This is a big new book, so it's going to be a little pricier. And I wanted to get a couple of different stories to it. I was going on a trip. We've talked a little bit about, like, kind of some preferences for trips and themes in the genre. Do we have any advice for listeners who may be looking to write uh, a tragedy, drama, or angst-centric work? I think the biggest piece of advice that I could really give is more is not always more. There is a point where you can go too far or too long or heap too much onto characters to the point where it just feels a bit mean-spirited or it just makes it very hard to read it when you 
when you see a character that you enjoy having hardship after hardship after hardship with nothing coming between those between those emotional blows to sort of soften it to make it easier it's it's one of those things where if you think about it if a person in real life was engaging with this if they were if this was what they were actually going through they'd be a sobbing wreck under their desk at that point so it's it's important to keep things balanced it's important to know that not all tragedy has to be bleak it doesn't have to be serious there can be moments of humor there you can don't. be you know shining lights in the dark at times you don't need to be alfred hitchcock yeah drama can be funny sometimes mm-hmm. and depending on the character and the exact tragic circumstances sometimes it can be funny to just keep having bad things happen to one guy for instance the cabbage merchant from avatar the last airbender <laughs> That also brings up a good point, too. Tragedy and comedy often relates on perspective. What can be what can be the tragedy of one character, the, the poor, beleaguered cabbage merchant in Avatar, is the comedy that we see it from because we're just seeing it in that moment. So you can you can really kind of turn anything one way or the other within a reasonable degree. Um, there's certain things you cannot turn to comedy, but there's there's a lot of flexibility to tweak a perspective and make something that would be funny to one particular character just heartbreakingly sad to another, and vice versa. Yeah, and you actually kind of stole what I was going to say out of my mouth, because I was going to reference kind of um, Hitchcock's rule about tension, mm. where... It's great to uh, have moments of high tension and to build up with that, but if all you are doing is really feeling a strong emotion for, like, hours, eventually you start to kind of become numb and it doesn't have as much impact anymore. You need breaks from the uh, intensity for... It's um, kind of almost like a palate cleanser, right? You need something to wash away, even just a little bit, allow you to recover so you can feel the full intensity of the next blow that's going to hit. Yeah, exactly. You've, you've got you've to you've give that little payoff every so often so that at the end of it, you can have that truly impactful big payoff and still have it resonate as opposed to, like you said, someone just being worn out by the time they reach there. You want to keep things on the stress side of the emotional stress strain curve. Exactly. Ian, you are stressing my restraint right now. I am <laughs> <laughs> uh, going to be very unhinged after the episode ends in Ian's ears about this. <laughs> I mean, if you think about the uh, the catharsis point as being, you know, the springing back, if you um, stress the emotion, the audience's emotions to the point where they can't really spring back, you know, the catharsis falls flat. Yeah, the 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 catharsis really needs to be grounded in the 
reality of what has happened in the story, um, in my opinion, too. You, you you need to have it if it's something that's if you've if you've reached this really bleak, really difficult situation, there's ways to resolve it in a way that are not going to turn it into a full tragedy. But you also can't swing too hard back towards happiness and joy. You know, if you if you if you dig yourself down too deep into the hole, you can't start trying to bail your way out in the last 10 paragraphs. Sometimes you just have to commit. I'm just going to disappear for 10 months and return with a unifying theory of literature and physics. (laughs) (laughs) A grand unified theory of narrative. (sighs) Yeah, I, I really don't want to turn this into like a material science podcast episode. So moving on a bit before I lose my gourd. Do we have anything else to say? Any more points we'd like to bring up? Something that wasn't included in the script or was completely glossed over because I am a clown. I think the only thing that I would have to say is that it is cool to feel your feelings. And angst facilitates that. And if if you read something and it leads you to be crying at the end, if I make someone cry with something that I write, I feel pretty accomplished with that. It is it is great to have that emotional openness to be sad or to be emotionally devastated for a little bit. You know, angst, I've, I've seen a lot of people, or not a lot of people, but I've seen people who shy away from angst or they don't like to engage with negative emotions and it's understandable that you wouldn't always want to inundate yourself with that you know for every for every time i read lock tomb again i end up going and reading a couple disc world books just to balance it out but there's something to be said about you can feel that sadness you can feel that crushing sort of dread coming into a tragedy and come out of it better for it you can you can process some things you can just enjoy a good narrative you can just enjoy a good cry that that that's my normal that's my biggest advocation go out and cry cry more crying is great been brought to you by big crying (laughs) listen to the messages of big crying (laughs) Today's episode was sponsored by Big Cry. The more cry you cry, the better you feel. Today's episode was also sponsored by Kleenex. For after you've had your cry. <laughs> yeah, this is this is this is where it's revealed that my that, that I'm that I'm actually Nat Kleenex heir to the Kleenex. <laughs> I'll fall into my trap. All right, well, Ian, in the last hour or so, have we gotten anything new in the mailbag? Unfortunately, we have not. So, if anybody would like to reach out to us, we have an email address. It is fanfictapes at gmail.com. You can also get a hold of us by leaving a comment on our YouTube page or a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. 
You can also reach out to us on social media on Twitter. Yes, I run our Twitter, so if you would like to scream at us, we are at FanFictionTapes with a capital F and a capital T in the usual places you'd expect capital letters. So, if we've suggested a work on the show, such as a couple of works we've suggested today, or if you have something you think we should read and want to scream at us about it, I have an ear on the place owned by the elongated muskrat. And before we leave, Matt, do you have any social media or other works you would like to promote on the show? Oh, goodness. Promoting myself, my biggest weakness. I um, I am semi-active on AO3, uh, Nat Dammit, uh, one word. I have not written anything in a while, so most of my stuff is either older or one is a tad orphan. But other than that, I don't really have much social media that anyone is going to be very interested in. <laughs> I have a Tumblr, and it is a trash Tumblr. <laughs> so that's... I, I think that's the point of the website. I'm not going to lie. More or less, but... It is a dumpster, and we are all raccoons in it. Yeah, there's a there's a reason why you can keep your anonymity in Tumblr, because you don't want people to see what's on your Tumblr sometimes. Just go ahead and give you a follow on there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I actually have read a couple of Nat's work that works. That's why I invited her for this episode. I was like, man, this is a great angst writer. Be great if we could get her on the show. <laughs> yeah. yeah, something about Arcane just broke my brain, and then I wrote an 82,000-word fic in two weeks, and now here we are. We've been there. <laughs> We've been there. Waiting to get back there with season two. I'm a little worried to get back there with season two, but we'll <laughs> Well, folks, I am and have always been Maya. And I am Nat. And I am Ian. Until next time, bye.